Um, if anyone's friends with me and thinks they're going to like funny call me, it's on flight mode, so sucked in. <laughs> Um, so there's a lot of ways to explain Occam's razor. I'm going to go with the simplest. <laughs> so everyone who laughs understands that that was it. That was the definition. <laughs> but for everyone else, um, the idea is this. If there are two or more explanations for something, it's probably best to go with the most straightforward. So say you come across a dead body. There's someone standing over it with a knife saying, I did it, I did the murder. It's possible that, in fact, moments earlier, a homicidal werewolf just jumped out the window, fled into the night after stabbing the victim, then paying off a passerby with a terminal illness, um, and the family to support to take the blame. But not everything can be an Agatha Christie novel. So to come to that particular conclusion, you need to make a whole lot of assumptions. That werewolves exist, that one in particular was in the room that night, that a deal occurred, that the passerby happened to be immediately amenable to being paid off. Um, but yeah. Somehow no fur was left at the scene. So Occam's razor takes the situation and shaves off the unnecessary and unlikely. It takes too many steps with too much uncertainty attached to get your werewolf scenario. So if the philosophical principle of Occam's razor is applied, the person doing the shouting about the stabbing is the murderer. So it's not an absolute. It's a probably. It's there to help guide the way. If suddenly video surfaces of the werewolf doing the thing, then the seesaw will flip the other way and Occam's razor will say that that is the most simple scenario. So it's the one with the window, the supernatural metamorphosis, and the money. So that was a whole lot of words to kind of explain the law of briefness. And to be honest, it's actually a whole lot more complicated than that. There's people who proposed anti-razors. There's criticisms that the theory um, is on things, but in, is in reality about explanations, which is not interchangeable. And there's just, in general, a whole lot of grumpiness that I personally think is a bit out of proportion, considering at the heart of it all, Occam's razor is just saying, look. I'm not going to say that this rule is always going to be right, but overall, let's just try and keep things simple and not overthink. So cue centuries of overthinking and nitpicking about language. So it's a rule of thumb. Let's not get bogged down arguing over whose thumb, whether it's the left one or the right one, if it has a whirl or an arch, if that impacts at all. But that being said, I'm not actually here to talk about Occam's razor. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the guy behind it, William of Occam. So here's the thing I love about the literature on him. One, that Wikipedia's Occam Razor article takes more time than necessary to explain that it's not a literal razor. <laughs> it's a metaphor. And I'd just like to say, excuse me, if the pictures are to be believed of this clean-faced man with a friar tuck going, thing going on, there had to be a literal Occam's Razor floating around at some point. <laughs> the second thing I love is because he was born in the 13th century, a lot of the facts about him are caveated with maybe, probably, and likely, which means that in deciding what is and is not true about him, people probably had to apply his own theory at points because they have to fill in gaps between what they actually knew. So one source states this up front, saying they have to estimate dates by extrapolating from known dates of events later in his life. So they know where he was born, what he studied at the age of 23, and from there they just use geography and logic to figure out the likely places he studied and the timelines in between. But what facts there are, there are paint a picture of an interesting guy. He was probably born in around 1285 in Ockham, England. So the town appeared in the Domesday Book, in t Domesday Book 200 years before William was born, and its assets included at that time one church, one and a half hides, and according to Wikipedia again, woodland worth 60 hogs, <laughs> which I spent far too long trying to understand, alas, fruitlessly. So if anyone can explain that to me later, I'd probably like that. 
Um, so I know that last names weren't so much of a thing back then, and it was common to be like someone of a place. But I still find it something to mull over that his most famous theory was technically named for him, but more from the place where he was from, because William's razor doesn't really have the same sort of gravitas. It sounds more like something you'd be fighting over in a sharehouse bathroom. <laughs> so Occam the man joined the Franciscan order of monks quite young. How young, no one knows. Um, he also joined at a complex time. It was always a complex time, but this one in particular was complex because they were debating how poverty they should poverty as monks. So his focus area, somewhat unsurprisingly, was logic. He went on to study theology at Oxford, where he gave lectures, had strong opinions, and as a result, was unpopular within the faculty. <laughs> he left without obtaining his masters. So Occam's work required a balance between his extreme rationality and his religious beliefs. Um, so he was a theologian logician, which is an extremely complicated way to live your life. <laughs> he and his work had a lot of critics, even beyond Oxford. So by the time he was in his late 30s, which, well done, it was the 1300s, um, he had reached a point where he was asked to defend his views to his own order. And around the same time, because when you're in for an inch, in for a mile, um, someone said that he was a heretic and he was asked to defend his views um, to the papal court. Um, so he travelled over to France to answer to this as well, which must have been quite the year for him. So while he was there, he got involved in what can only be described as some real Game of Thrones shit, if Game of Thrones was written by someone who also writes fan fiction about doing your tax. <laughs> so the debate over how poverty should be poverty in the Franciscan order was still raging. Basically, and bear in mind this is somewhat of an oversimplification because there was a whole lot of things going on, the idea was this. Jesus and his apostles, it is argued, owned no property, collectively or individually. So they relied on the kindness of strangers. The Franciscan order believed this, imitated this, and argued to live in poverty for them is the right way to do things and show faith. It is hard to do this, though, even if you are hardcore devout. And it's not just about not buying things and not owning things, not having a dresser, not having too many coat hangers. Because keep in mind, these people are academics. They study. These monks, they, they watch peas breed and then talk about their children to come up with genetics. Um, they come up with philosophical theories. They spend their days picking apart logic and the meaning of reality. So that means that not owning things is actually a much more complicated situation than you might originally think. So what is ownership? It exists, even transiently. So once food has been donated to you, once you're eating it, doesn't that make it yours? No, apparently, because they found a loophole, um, which is to say everything actually belongs to the Pope. <laughs> the Pope, John XXII, and sidebar to add that this was the Pope who had apparently been the victim of an assassination attempt by a sorcery, um, decided that this forced poverty thing with the loophole where he owns everything was silly and not on, and he refused to accept ownership, which meant that technically the Franciscans now own things which they didn't want to do. So I was kind of with him on the silliness thing here, and then I saw some of his earlier official conversations about poverty. So in the lead up to the big showdown which is coming in France, a whole bunch of paperwork and bills were punted back and forth regarding poverty and the ideas behind it. So Michael of Cesena, a high up in the Franciscan order, was arguing for the strict poverty as an interpretation of Christ's teachings. Somehow this all became a big argument over whether believing that the apostles owning no property was at odds with the Catholic faith, and I have to read this quite carefully because it's all very like specific. Um, and in the end it seems like it wasn't about, oh isn't this silly, but in fact it was, oh if they're right about the apostles, does that mean that the Catholic Church technically is not allowed to own anything? So 
in that way, a small technicality becomes a big controversy. So people were surprisingly called heretics over it. And eventually, at the same time that Ockham was in France to deal with his accusations of teaching heresy, Cezana, who presumably, if he had a razor, would have immediately given away because he's not allowed to own things, um, was summoned there too over his refusal to, to follow the Pope's orders. So it's worth mentioning that at this point that Ockham was never officially declared a heretic. I'm not sure if that's because his case was cut short or whatnot or whose power is within, but that aside, Cezana and the Pope had their huge disagreement. So Cezana went to Ockham and called upon his logic and rationality to look at the question and go about the apostles and ownership and to go over the Pope's past official statements um, to see what he could come up with. Ockham did this, and guess what? He concluded the Pope was a heretic. <laughs> and not just a heretic, a stubborn heretic, one that once he was presented with the fact that he was a heretic, kept on being heretical. So technically, according to the Pope laws, which I'm surprisingly unfamiliar with, um, this meant that he wasn't actually Pope anymore because he'd given it up because he was a heretic. So unconsciously forfeited it. But what can you really do with that information, or more specifically, opinion? Cezana, Ockham, and a few others then fled France and went into exile and found protection with the Holy Roman, em Holy Roman Emperor, who incidentally was also having a huge fight with the Pope. And the amount of, amount of fights that the Pope was managing to have at the same time was frankly quite impressive considering there was no phones or internet at this time. So a whole lot of things happened with Cezana, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, and a poor attempt at a replacement Pope. Thank you, Oxford Commas. Um, but Ockham wasn't there for that. After fleeing France, he was excommunicated, um, but never officially called a heretic, so swings and roundabouts. He stayed in Munich for some reason and continued his work, which was both philosophical and political. Some of it was about the Pope and whether or not the Pope should have unlimited power. Spoilers, he didn't think he should. But um, Occam's razor is the thing he's most famous for. However, though it was never called that in his lifetime, there isn't a pinpoint in time when he first uttered the words, and the theory is argued to date back further, with versions being attributed to Aristotle, Ptolemy, Durandus of St. Porcine, who was one of Occam's contemporaries, studying the same things at the same places, etc., etc. Let's be fair, though. The simple answer is probably the best answer, is probably something that tons of people came up with independently. It's just that none of them wrote it down or gotten huge fights with the Pope. So the wording and translations also differ. There's plurality must never be posited without necessity. There's don't multiply entities beyond necessity. And for a third version and an exercise in meta-irony, more things should not be used than are necessary. <laughs> Occam died in Munich, and there are contradictory dates. One source says, without hesitation, that he died at night, either on April 9 or 10, in 1347 at roughly the age of 60. Another hedges their bet saying that he's thought to have died in the Munich convent in 1349 during the Black Death, but maybe actually he died there two years earlier, who knows. Wikipedia doesn't come to the party at all. In fact, simply saying, William of Ockham fled to the school, meaning Oxford, which is wrong, and spent the rest of his life living with a group of friars who also did not like the large power that the church had, so I'll be correcting that when I go home tonight. Um, Incidentally, Wikipedia's article on Occam is both woefully and perhaps aptly short for the man who championed brevity. It's 143 words, and nine of those words are William of Occam said three times. <laughs> so the inconsistency in death dates could point to something bigger and more conspirational. No one seems to have been recorded as actually having seen him die, and surely a two-year discrepancy points to something sinister going on. 
Maybe he was kidnapped by aliens. Maybe he changed names and snuck back into England. Maybe he never existed in the first place. Maybe he was stabbed to death by a werewolf. But to believe that would mean making a lot of assumptions. So let's go with the simplest explanation and take that, and take that as the most likely. That William of Ockham was a scholar, a champion of logic who prioritized pragmatism and rationality over personal comfort and died in Munich around the age of 60.